I'm Ken Canera, and you're listening to Beyond Consulting. Today, we welcome Cindy Kara Sherman to the studio. Cindy is the Senior Director of Marketing Insights and Innovation at Frida's. She's also a former management consultant at PwC, and she's also real-life Rachel Green from Friends, but we'll get into that in a bit. First, I just want to remind everybody that's listening, thank you so much for tuning in. We are brought to you by ECA Partners, a project staffing and executive search firm focused on former management consultants. Cindy, thanks so much for joining us. It's fun to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, Cindy, maybe you could just start off by taking us a little trip down memory lane and telling us a little bit about yourself in terms of your background and and maybe just how you got into consulting to begin with. Sure thing. So I'm from the East Coast. I went to school in New Jersey, Rutgers. I kept it real, state school. <laughs> and it's really funny because I remember going to a, like a job fair. They brought in, you know, potential employers and you went from booth to booth and there were these consulting firms there. And I was an undergrad business major, marketing, but I really had no idea what these consulting firms did, like really had no idea. People would try to explain it to me and they would say, it has something to do with Y2K, which was a big thing at the time, I'm dating myself. (laughs) But I was like, I really don't get what they do, but fine, whatever, like park that aside. So I was recruited right from Rutgers to go to Bloomingdale's. So that's where the real life Rachel Green came in. And I went to the Bloomingdale's, they had a buyer training program. It was kind of amazing. Like I remember going to orientation. I was the third orientation of the summer. Maybe I started in like September or something. They had already had two other classes start. And there were 20 to 30 people, mostly women, in the training class. And they said, you know, you're, there's 20, 30 of you out here. We've done three of these. So call it, we've just started 60 to 90 assistant buyers. Like, look around because only one in three will be here in a year. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know, right? I was like, oh, my God. That's reassuring. <laughs> I feel like right now that's out of, like, succession or, or something. We're watching this new show called Industry. I'll give that a plug. So I feel like it's right out of industry. It's this, like, investment banking training program. Yeah. But started there and it was a whirlwind and it was, I remember, like, took a while to get my feet under me and really understand what I was doing. But once I got it, once it all, like every job I've ever had since, once it clicked, it clicked. It's like climbing up the hill and it's like steep. It's you ever go on like a log flume or a roller coaster? We're going to Knott's Berry Farm on Monday. So maybe that's just in my brain. But oh, nice. <laughs> um, it's like chug, chug, chug. You're like, oh my God, this is so steep. And then for me, it just flattens out really quickly. So I always go from feeling overwhelmed to like, all right, what's next? I'm bored now. <laughs> so it was the typical for me. The first six months were like, oh my goodness. But then it was like, it flattened out. And I got much more comfortable and worked in sheets and comforters. And that's where real life Rachel Green. I actually, what was really a funny anecdote is I had a summer intern. Her name was Annie. And she, I guess, gosh, I might get the names wrong. She was dating some, she interned for us and she was reported into me and she was dating someone. And the person that she was dating, I believe was, oh gosh, what is his name? Tate Donovan. She was dating Tate Donovan's brother. And at the time, Tate Donovan was dating Jennifer Aniston. Oh, wow. And this is all in New York City. So she comes in like on a Monday. It's like, what did you do this weekend? She's like, 
Well, my boyfriend and I had dinner with his brother and his girlfriend. And I was like, oh, and she was like, you know, the brother is Tate Donovan and the girlfriend is Jennifer Aniston. And so when apparently when Annie told Jennifer Aniston, 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 what she was doing, Rachel, like she laughed, Jennifer Aniston, i.e. Rachel laughed because she's like, oh yeah. my God, that was right at the time that Rachel Green was in that character, was in the, you know, the buyer training program at Bloomingdale's or whatever it was. So that was a very long way of saying that it was a very funny story and a very funny coincidence. That is a really cool coincidence. And by the way, for those of us that don't know, myself included, what does a buyer at like a Bloomingdale's that's part of like a training program like that do? Great question. So one of the things that's really drawing similarities across my career is a buyer is the hub of the wheel. So let's say I was the buyer in the sheets category, like bedding sheets. I was really the hub of the wheel. So we were together with my boss manager, we were figuring out what sheets we wanted to carry in our assortment, you know, which stores were going to have which assortments based on their the demographics and psychographics and spending behavior of their shoppers. And then you're allocating, you're figuring out how much you're going to buy. And then like, this has probably changed in recent years. So I feel like the buyers do a lot more of the item selection and they have other teams of people who are much more analytical that are probably doing that how much for each store. But at the time that was part of our role. So we were figuring out how much for each store. And then you're figuring out how and when you're going to promote it, how deep you're going to go on price. You know, Bloomingdale's would always send out their catalogs. What were we going to feature in which catalog? What was going to be part of which promotion and which sale? But ultimately, you are responsible for sales margin and turns on your category. So I don't remember how big the category was, a couple million, whatever it was. But we were responsible, similar to what I later would inherit in CPG, is you're responsible for the financials of category and you're responsible for doing whatever it takes to hit those financials. Interesting, because my you know cursory understanding, which is probably from friends, is basically like you get to decide just what we're going to buy. It's more of like a creative role as opposed to a super analytical one, which this sounds like you're basically managing a pretty big spend category and the associated margins as it relates to the different channels. You know, it's so funny because that's probably what I thought when they gave me the job. Like, I'm just going to go in. (laughs) That's probably why you took it. (laughs) I have such amazing taste. I'm just going to tell the American public, like, what they should have, right? Like, what did I know? I was 22. No, maybe my bot. I mean, truly, like, somebody up the food chain maybe did that. But we were real. I mean, it was not as glamorous as it sounds. I remember, God, and again, things have changed. But Bloomingdale's had this warehouse out in Long Island City, which now is very trendy, but then was a real black hole. And we would, the assistant buyers would have to go out there and sort through all the returned merchandise. Oh, interesting. So think about all the sheets that people buy and use and then return. And I would have to sort, talk about not glamorous. Oh, yeah. There I am sorting through it to figure out what gets returned to the vendor that we can get credit for, what is perfectly fine and should get repackaged. I've got like a scanner and I'm creating, looking up in a big book back then, like what the UPC was, printing out UPC <laughs> labels, retagging them. Like, talk about not glamorous. Yeah. Like Rachel Green did not do this. <laughs> and I'm like, here I would thought I'd be choosing, you know, setting, being the tastemaker for America's betting. Not so much. So yes, there is definitely a part of it. You go to market, they call it, you go to market, you know, the vendors show you what's new for the season, have say, and you partner with your vendors like anything else. They're like, hey, this is a really big collection for us. You're like, "Mm, I'm not feeling it. And they're like, but it's really important. Like we go out on a limb for us here. And you're like, okay, we will. We'll bring this in so you can test it. But we also need you to do this. I'm going to need markdown money for this. I need your help moving through this problem that we all created last year with this slow moving dust ruffle 
It's kind of funny and betting. Oh, interesting. This is actually a lesson that has stayed with me throughout my career. We would buy, you know, it's like sheets and duvet covers and toss pillows and Euro shams and pillow shams and dust ruffles. And no matter what, your collections would get broken. People would buy the duvets and they'd buy the standard shams, maybe oh. the king shams. And by the time the collection was all said and done, all you would have left are Euro shams and dust ruffles. <laughs> and Euro shams and dust ruffles that were once very expensive, like your $500 things, you're marking them down to like $9.99 because you just want to get it out of your inventory because it's aged inventory. <laughs> but honestly, that stays with me. Other lessons learned in my career, I will say, oh, we just have the dust ruffles left. And people are like, what does that mean? What do you mean we just have the dust ruffles left? But it basically means we made a commitment to some larger program. Yeah. And as a remnant, we just have a couple slow moving items left that don't really partner or pair with anything, but we got to work them out of our inventory and how are we going to do that? So uh, it was dust ruffles oh, continue to be a good, <laughs> a good, a good lesson learned. I will definitely remember that. <laughs> yeah. So that was the dust ruffles. Anyway, so there was a little glamour to the job. I mean, you know, we'd get to go to some dinners. Designers would like, you know, Calvin Klein launched their betting line while I was there, got to go to their showroom and go to some dinners and meet their designers. So there definitely is a, you know, when you're in New York City, you're 22 and, you know, you're being invited to these really, really fancy restaurants where I'm like, is there steak on the menu? Is there broccoli on the menu? Because <laughs> I don't know what anything else is here. <laughs> <laughs> Can I bring some home? Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, um, this dinner costs more than I'm going to make in like an entire week. So. <laughs> oh, I know. Wasn't that odd when you were in your 20s going to restaurants? You'd like, I wouldn't even go to now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's really cool. Well, thanks for the education on the buyer because I've always heard about it. And I just kind of assumed that it was more glamour, but that's helpful. Then you went from buying to consulting, right? Yes. So the key things here are as a buyer, you are the hub of the wheel and that will pick up kind of later on. And then the other thread I wanted to pick up was going to those career fairs and being like, I don't understand what these consultants do. Well, then I moved to New York and I started making lots of friends and many of them were consultants, you know, i.e. people who could afford to live in New York at the time. And I was like, what do you all really do? And it was a lot of IT. But one of them explained to me, I had a friend who worked at Pricewaterhouse and she explained to me that they had different parts of their practice. So yes, there was an IT part of the practice, but let's say there was also an operations supply chain part of the practice, and there was a strategy part of the practice. And that they had different verticals, industry verticals, if you will. And so it was all about the different kinds of practices and then the different kinds of industries. And so one of their industries that they focused on was retail and CPG. So she was like, you know, we're always growing. We're always looking for consultants. Do you want me to like throw your name in the hat? And around the same time, you know, I started having a lot of conversations with my boss's boss. I would always look forward to as like a little baby assistant buyer. Loved when my manager went on vacation because then I got to work directly with her manager and show her what I really could do. Of course, flying close to the sun. And she and I would have yeah. these long talks and she said to me one day, she said, I feel like you expect too much from your job. <laughs> And yeah, she was right. I did. You know, I was straight out of college. I wanted to conquer the world. I felt like I had so much to learn and so much to offer. And I was so hungry. And she was right. I did need a job that expected more from me. And that for me to stay at Bloomingdale's was a little bit more settling. Not that it wasn't dynamic, not that there wasn't a lot to learn, but I wanted to be all in. Mm -hmm. I wanted to stay up all night. I wanted to be flown all over the country. Like I just, I just wanted 
work was my life at that point. And it was a good time for work to be my life because right now with kids and I wouldn't be able to do that quite so much. Oh, yeah. So the friend who had said the consulting, she took my resume. And the next thing I knew, I got a phone call and they interviewed me and started meeting with members of the team. And I was like, wow, I never really understood what this was. But now I kind of am getting a better sense that there are different types of consulting. And I would come into this role using my retail knowledge and how important industry expertise is versus, you know, they'll hire a lot of people right out of school, but to hire people who've worked in the industry and who can bring that perspective, even at the junior level, was really, really useful to them. Sure. So I'll never forget the day I got the offer. This is, again, I'm dating myself, but... I remember I got a call from the recruiter and she's like, hey, I was supposed to talk to somebody else, like one more interview. And then that person canceled. And she's like, you know what? Don't worry about it. We're actually going to package you up an offer right now. I'm going to put it in the mail today and, you know, I'll send it overnight. You should have it tomorrow. This was all in New York City. And I was like, I called her back. I was like, hey, she got your message. I was like, you know what? I have a meeting just like a couple blocks from your office. I'll just swing by and pick it up, which was so not true. But I didn't even want to wait the day <laughs> to get, like, I couldn't even wait. So I was so excited yeah. to like, jump on the subway and, you know, run over to Sixth Avenue and, you know, pick up the FedEx and come back to my office. And I called her and I was like, I accept. I didn't negotiate anything. <laughs> But part of it was really funny. In retail, stores are open the day after Thanksgiving. And the day after Thanksgiving, even when you work in the buying office, you're expected to go into the stores and work in the stores. And I was 23. I just wanted the day after Thanksgiving off so I could hang out with my high school friends at a bar, right? (laughs) Naturally, that is the best day to do that. I was like, I need to resign with two weeks before Thanksgiving so I won't have to work this (laughs) extra day in the stores and, you know, not spend a full Thanksgiving holiday at home. And so, yeah, so that was the main reason I didn't even negotiate that offer. In retrospect, I probably should have. But that is how I landed in consulting. That's awesome. And I think that's a really cool story because who negotiates their first offer? Like, I mean, I remember when I, I was just like, someone's going to hire me? Really? <laughs> you want to give me your money? Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. You trust me in front of your clients? Okay, cool. Where do I sign? So that's awesome. That's really cool. So then you're at PwC and... So at the time, Pricewaterhouse was merging with Coopers. Oh, that's So right. that happened kind of just as I was joining. So now I was joining like the big guy. Okay. And so then you joined the retail practice and... And I mean, how long were you there? What kind of projects did you do? What was that experience like? So nothing prepared me for, (laughs) and you know, the world maybe has changed, maybe has not. I'll be curious to see what your viewers say in the comments, in the chat, but nothing prepared me. Like I was all geared up. I'm like, I'm gonna, you know, buy my suits and I get all ready and I'm like, okay, ready to go. And I'm used to working hard. Like I'm used to, you know, and I get there to sit on the bench. I'm guessing that's still an expression, right? Is, it, is that still an it expression? It is, yeah. Okay. It definitely is. Sit on the bench. It's like, nope, you're not staffed. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? And they're like, well, you don't actually have to come into work if you don't want to. You could like be at home. And I'm like, why would I not come into work? Like, <laughs> now I'm like, oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. But so I would come into work every day. They gave me internal practice development type projects. And, you know, I work on them, but it was so weird. I remember I started right before, cause I started right after Thanksgiving and it was the holidays. It was so quiet. And I was like, what am I doing here? And luckily there was one other person in the same boat. Her name was Amy Meller, now Amy Thompson. And she's still one of my very best friends to this day. And so we would just, I don't know, we hung out. We worked on practice development projects together. She helped immerse me. 
she helped like show me the ropes and different online trainings and things like that that I was able to do and like get myself all set up. So it was really fun and she's still a really good friend of mine. Then from there, I finally got, I remember in, I worked on, there was something that was one of those projects where they were already over on hours, but I basically found a mentor. I found this woman, Kari LePage, she's amazing and one of the smartest people I've ever met. And she was managing a project. I know they were already over on hours and she was like, I have some work that I could really use your help with and I'm not gonna be able to let you bill against this, but I'm not supposed to do that. And I was like, I don't care. I just wanna do anything. And so I started helping her because it was about me learning, it was practice. Yeah. And then I remember like they were getting ready, it was over New Year's weekend and they were getting ready for a big client meeting at the beginning of January. This was before cell phones. And I was like, look, here's my home number. Call me if you need me. And I remember one day, it's like the day after, I don't know, between Christmas and New Year's, and she calls me and she's like, can you come in? I was so excited. I'm like, someone needs me. <laughs> so I go running into the office and then the door was locked. Oh no. And I had to actually sit outside and wait there for like two hours. And there was no back there, was cell phones, whatever, like didn't have it. And so I remember I had to wait for someone to open the door and I couldn't even get in. She's like, oh, there you are. I was like, well, the door was locked and I had to wait for security to come in and security's off because it's the Sunday before, whatever. Yeah. But I worked on that project and I helped out and then that helped give me good street cred. Like, hey, this girl, she's hungry. She's willing to do whatever it takes. She's smart, you tell her what to do. She'll run with it. And then from there, yeah. I got staffed on my first project. Oh my gosh, what was my first project? Well, I got stepped on a number of projects over the course of that, you know, first couple of years and probably starting on, you know, some of the specialty retailer stuff and wound up working on a lot of grocery retailers. So for a grocery retailer, it was called A&P. It's now part of Ajo, basically. Did a big project for them. Did a big project for the military. Oh. So the military has Air Force, the Marine Corps and the Navy, and they all operate exchanges on the base, retail operations, and they all have their own buying offices. So the idea was merging all of that and looking at you know the efficiencies of that. So I worked on that project for a long time. I did a ton of work for Nine West, which was a footwear retailer up in Westchester. So that was a lot of fun. Oh, I always wondered why it was called Nine West. Okay. Yeah, they had their own retail stores. So a big like store operations project, how to be more efficient in operating their stores. So a lot of different and some other things in there. I did a project for Nielsen, the data collection folks. So just a number of different projects over a period of several years and did lots of different things, but really learn pretty quickly, align yourself with a few good senior people. So there's a woman by the name of Diane Hamilton who would always staff me and this woman, Kari, and just find your mentors and just help them, whatever it takes. And I didn't care because what else did I have to do? No other obligations, but it's just do whatever it takes to help them and be indispensable to them. And they will always staff you on their projects. That is such a good piece of advice. It's so important to network just internally at consulting firms and kind of like, you know, make yourself be known as kind of like an indispensable resource. Unfortunately for me, I wasn't known as that, <laughs> but you know what? I, I survived the, uh, so that that's cool. And then, so then in total, you ended up staying in consulting around three years, right? Yeah, that sounds about right. And then what got you to leave? Well, I went to business school because, you know, those big consulting firms, they pretty much breed you to go to business school. <laughs> So all my mentors, it was like, are you thinking about applying to business school? Can I write your recommendation letters? Like they're kind of nudging you. They're like, hey, even if you want to stay, an MBA will be helpful and go to business school, have the experience. And then if you choose to come back, come back. 
But I loved that it was a safe space and I didn't, I mean, I remember working on my applications in the office on the weekend because I needed to use the printer. Oh, wow. So again, before you file your applications online, but it was a very supportive environment for continuing my education and I really appreciated that. And I felt like, okay, if the economy ever goes south, which it wound up doing like a year later, 2000, I can be a consultant and I can go back to a retailer and be a buyer. You know, with a couple years here under my belt, what else am I really qualified to do? And so I felt like I just wanted to expand my options and, and I wanted to go have fun. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I was single and I was looking at, you know, I had spent my whole life on the East Coast and I was looking to go to school somewhere else, somewhere different and just have a different experience and just broaden my horizons. That's a great reason to go to business school. All of the above. Yeah, and I mean, I went to Berkeley, Haas. I cannot say enough about their program. And it's grown leaps and bounds since I was there. But I remember that one of the things I learned in consulting, especially when I was on that project for A&P, I loved my team. We were an amazing team. I mean, I'll never forget. We started out at A&P with like a whole wing of offices and slowly but surely they hired people who needed to sit in the offices and so they consolidated us. So in the end, we were like 20 of us in this one room, but like 20 of the smartest, most fun people you could ever imagine. And we were working all the time and I could have cared less. Like some of the best professional memories are from that room and some of my biggest professional accomplishments were in that room. And so everyone used to call us the A-team, like kind of joking A&P, but we were the A-team. And that is where I learned that when you have an amazing team, the sum is so much greater than the individual parts. And that when you have an amazing team with a great leader, you are unstoppable and you really can do anything. And so I very much wanted that in business school. I didn't want to go to business school somewhere where people are climbing over the bodies to get to the top. I wanted to go somewhere with more of a team environment and where you're going to succeed, but we're all going to succeed together, not at somebody's expense. And that is Haas to a T. Interesting. Yeah. Now, I mean, because, okay, obviously all different businesses kind of have their claim to fame. And it's something actually we haven't really gotten into in this show. But what about Haas, I guess, like, really, I mean, makes you say that to this day? Like, could you give like an example or something like that? Just because I don't even know what that's like, because I never went to business school, actually. Yeah. You know, it's so funny, because I just went back for my 20 year reunion. And I've been back for pretty much every reunion. But I don't know why it felt like a really long time between the 15 year reunion and the 20. Probably because we had some huge life changes and because of COVID, those just felt like five long years. But like the warm and fuzzies that I felt stepping back on that campus and sitting in a lecture, I just cannot even, it was like so physically, I had such a visceral reaction in a good way. Like my whole body, I just like felt it. Like I just felt like I was back in it. Like energized. Yeah, yeah. Like the adrenaline flowing and the energy just coming out of every finger and every toe. And I think it's, for me, it's part of being something amazing. And it's the same energy that I got from being on the A-team. It's like, oh my God, I am so lucky to be with these people. And I am so lucky to be one of them. And on my own, I could never do this. But with them, I feel like I'm part of something so much bigger. And I feel like it's just a real collaborative spirit and it's a real, we have each other's backs and hey, I'm really good at marketing. I'll help you with marketing, but 
I remember feeling way over my head in some of the analytical coursework. I'm trying to remember what was my, oh, this operations class where we're building models. And I know how to do that, but it still kind of did me in a little bit. Or finance and running some of the financial stuff. It was just like, I remember people would be like, hey, I'm good at this. Let me help you and you can help me with this. And it was just this feeling like it wasn't competition. It was building. It's a spirit of building and collaboration. And even Berkeley, you know, I sit here and at my desk, I have this little card that they gave me at the reunion. And it's like Berkeley Haas, defining leadership principles, question the status quo, confidence without attitude, students always, and beyond yourself. And even today, you know, it's interesting. I had a call with a coach of mine and we were talking about not knowing the answer. And what do you do and how do you feel when you're, you know, in a room and presenting something, a high level audience and you don't have the answers. And he's like, do you show up at school knowing all the answers? I'm like, no. And he's like, well, business doesn't need to be any different. It's okay to say you don't know the answer. And it's okay to approach something as a journey versus getting defensive if you don't know something. And he said that, and then I you know, got this card and it's like, yeah, students always. like That's what makes you better is a continuous journey of knowledge. And I feel like that is very much what Haas was all about. Thanks for sharing that, especially the confidence without attitude piece. Yeah, I love that. I mean, look, we've talked a few times and everything. And it's like it's something that like I genuinely feel as I talk to you, which is really cool. And like call it vulnerability. Uh, you call it like a million different things. But I think it's so important, especially for a leader like yourself, because then you become accessible. Right. The worst thing you can do as a leader with a big team or something like that is, OK, sure, you can know your subject matter inside and out. But if the people that work with you and for you can't come to you because they're intimidated, then it doesn't, it's worthless, right? That's really cool. I didn't realize that was part of their slogan, confidence without attitude. That's really cool. Yeah, it's one of their defining principles. So yeah, Haas was a really good fit and a really nice continuation of my A-team from consulting. Okay, so then that's Haas. Then you went to Unilever, right? Yes. So while I was at Haas, I think one of the executives at Unilever had gone to Haas and somebody had gone there for undergrad and somebody had gone there for business school. And so they like to take like one intern from Haas. So they came through the marketing club at Haas to recruit. They were on the East Coast. I was from New York. They were in Greenwich, Connecticut. I at the time had a fiance back on the East Coast. So it just made a ton of sense to, I was like, oh my God, me, me, me. <laughs> and when I went <laughs> home for winter break, I went up there and met with them and interviewed and got the offer. And so I did my summer internship there and then wound up getting an offer to go back full time by the end of my summer. Oh, cool. And so came back, did my second year at Haas. I did do a semester abroad in London, which was amazing at London Business School and then landed back at Unilever full time when I graduated being the assistant brand manager on Whisk Laundry Detergent. So another one, like talk <laughs> about glamour. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, such a big product too, right? I mean, like that was a big deal. Well, laundry detergent's big. Whisk was not so big. Whisk had had its heyday and call it the 80s. Oh, really? Because I remember, maybe it's because I don't buy laundry detergent now. I, like, oh, I guess I do. My wife does. But I remember Whisk vividly. <laughs> so is it not around anymore? I think it was an East Coast thing and they had commercials oh, okay. that was like, Whisk gets ring around the collar and your whole wash clean. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can picture the trade dress, everything. So what's fun about Whisk was that, I mean, it was funny. I lived in New York City. I didn't even do my own laundry. Like I didn't even have a laundry machine in my apartment, right? So it was like, here I am working on laundry. So, but the funny thing is, is that what I learned is you can get, I can get excited about anything. 
Like laundry detergent, is that that exciting? No, but our brand positioning stood for whisk will take care of the dirt and stains that come with play, like kids playing. Mm -hmm. And kids playing is a normal, fundamental, healthy part of their growth and development. Yes. So don't you worry. You let your kids play and develop into, you know, bloom into adults. We will take care of the dirt and stains that come with that. So you can just let them be their best selves. And that was our positioning. And I was like, yeah, like I don't work on laundry detergent. I work on empowerment of children. (laughs) So it's just I learned that it's not what you work on. It's how you think about it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's some sort of saying where like the janitor at a hospital, it's like, no, I'm saving lives. Right. And for what it's worth, I can still remember the commercials with like the grass stains on the pants. And I know exactly what you're talking about. So that's really cool. Okay, so brand manager and then you went to Pepsi, then you went to Wrigley. I mean, talk a little bit about because I do want to get to Frida where you're at now. But talk to us a little bit about kind of like some of the other very notable (laughs) brands you've been part of. Well, what I learned pretty quickly at Unilever is that it wasn't that different from what I had done at Bloomingdale's in that I was the hub of the wheel. So in brand management, you own the brand, you own the P&L, you own the sales number, you own the profit number, you own how much marketing you're going to spend to get there. So it was different in that when you're a retailer, just thinking about the retail piece of it. And here it's like, you know, you're thinking about like in retail, you're selling to a consumer, a shopper. Now it's, I got to sell it into a buyer, the buyer of Kroger, Walmart, Target, and then create pull. So it's you push, get it on the shelf, and then create pull, get it off the shelf, get consumers to want to know about it, increase awareness, trial, repeat, frequency, all that kind of stuff. But what I learned is that it was still the same principle as I was sitting at the hub of the wheel. So I felt like it felt familiar and it felt right based on what I had previously done. But it was a nice merger of, there were a lot more PowerPoint decks than there had ever been. Oh, really? I don't think I ever opened PowerPoint when I was in retail. And I was like, okay, consulting prepared me for this. Oh, wow. Even when I did my summer internship, my final presentation, I remember I built a little model. I built a model because that's what we used to do in consulting. There was a model, a framework, sorry. This is probably a better word. Answers everything, right? A framework, right. And then I built that framework and I took a, a framework I had from consulting and I adapted it to the project and created that and showed them how I was thinking about the framework and every page of the deck, you know, I'd highlight a different part of the framework. So you know what part of the framework we were on. Where you were exactly in the presentation. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, people who came from other walks of life did not have that type of preparation and were not able to like use that 30,000 foot view that consulting helped me develop and then kind of drill down. So I felt like going into brand management, I felt like everything I had done in my career had really led up to that. I also realized pretty quickly that I had a passion for innovation and new products, that that's what I thought was, you know, within brand management, I loved the notion of brand equity. So I loved thinking about what does a brand stand for and how do we bring that to life? And what are the consumer insights that underpin that positioning? I still love that to this day. And I love thinking about that. I'm just really a brand strategist at heart. And then love thinking about what are the unmet needs that those consumers have and how can we fulfill those unmet needs via innovation. And so early on in realized that I was very much an innovator and loved coming up with ideas for new products and doing all the strategy work around that and bringing the graphics to life and the ad campaigns to life. And, you know, what was it going to smell like? What was it going to taste like? What was it going to feel like? What was the packaging going to be? And really kind of crafting and love the arts and crafts of like 
crafting the whole proposition and bringing it together and then testing it and seeing if consumers liked it as much as I did. <laughs> okay, so like when you say brand equity is for a lay person like myself, the, what I immediately think of is the movie What Women Want. Remember the <laughs> movie with Mel Gibson, right? And like uh, he's trying to get inside the... He puts on the pantyhose in the bathroom? <laughs> yeah, or the Nike thing. Yeah. So, I mean, am I thinking about that right? Like you're trying to get inside the mind of consumers or... Exactly. I mean, when I say brand equity, like in brand management, there's a very common tool, which is called a brand pyramid. And what lives at the very top triangle of the pyramid, think like Maslow's hierarchy, is your brand essence. And that's like a short little statement of like, what does this brand stand for? And to me, like I could pontificate that all day and like have the time of my life. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> but yes, and the way you get to that is I call it you start, and this is what I learned at Unilever, you start with the consumer and go 360 degrees around them. So when we're innovating, I remember working on an anti-aging project, you know, skincare, face creams for Dove. After Whisk, I moved on to Dove and talking to women who are getting older, who are probably now the age I am, and talking to them, talking to their husbands, talking to their kids, talking to their hairstylists talking to their doctors about, you know, what are the concerns that these women have and what are some of the workarounds that they start to use as they get older to feel like their youngest self and to look like their youngest self, to really try and understand what the compensating behaviors are and therefore what could the unmet needs be and what's the tone that we need to use when we speak to them to be speaking to them and not at them and doing all of that consumer research like very much like in the movie, What Women Want. And then from that, really saying, this is what our brand stands for. And here are our innovation platforms. And here's working, briefing the ad agency on that. And they're going to come up with the tagline and the creative. But it all starts with what are the underpinning consumer insights. Interesting. Okay, got it. And so when you're in that kind of a brand strategist role, how much of your time is spent maybe on that sort of formulation versus actually executing? Oh, such a good question. So here I am, <laughs> ABM, right out of business school. It's not that different from the parallel we've drawn about going to Bloomingdale's and thinking I'm going to be the tastemaker of America. No, you get there and it was like, okay, every month your IRI data is going to update. And I'm guessing your audience is somewhat familiar with that syndicated data where you see how well you're selling in the grocery store. And when you're in ABM, you come in Monday morning at like 6 a.m., the data refreshes, and you literally spend the next four weeks analyzing that data. And then it refreshes again, and you spend the next four weeks. And when you're not doing that in your spare time, you're managing some kind of project like, hey, we're going to do a special unpack. So for us, I remember it was like, so we were attaching socks to the laundry detergent bottles for some type of unpack for Walmart or Target or something like that. So you're managing like really sexy projects like that. So it's really more as you move up the line and as you have other people who come in to do that more executional analytical work, and as you get to think more about what is the brand and what is it going to stand for, and, and that's when you start doing that more kind of fun, the fun stuff, I call it, the strategic stuff. But at the lower level, your lower level is not the best word, but at the more entry level in there, you're doing the analytical work and the grunt work and the project management, but hopefully you've got a great boss. And hopefully that manager is bringing you to every meeting where these big things are being discussed. You're not talking, you're not presenting, but you're a fly on the wall and you're hearing the conversations and you're learning from it. I mean, I will never forget my boss, Marie Chan at Unilever, talking about how WISC was not dirt for dirt's sake. 
WISC was about dirt for learning's sake and that we needed to be very clear that in advertising, when we were showing situations where people were getting dirty, it couldn't be getting dirty just for the heck of it. There had to be some type of payoff. Interesting, okay. So you slide into home base or it's a science fair or something, but you're getting, there is some type of payoff that you are now a better person because you've interacted with the dirt, if you will, just versus, I don't know, I'm Peppa Pig and I splashed around in a muddy puddle. <laughs> For those of you with kids. <laughs> Although now I think things have changed and you'd say even just splashing around in a muddy puddle has payoffs, emotional payoffs for it. But this is probably before things were quite that evolved. But no, but that's an important nuance. And it is funny because like, I mean, I can literally think about like the ads that I saw uh, now I'm dating myself, but like kind of like, you know, it's like science fairs and like you saw like kids like holding a dirty frog or like, I don't know. It just, but it stuck with me. But that, that's probably why it was like, it was science related. You were learning, you were growing. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. So that was Unilever. And then I jumped around more than I should have. It's definitely one of those things where in retrospect, I'm not quite sure why I jumped around quite so much, but I left Unilever. I wanted to transfer to Chicago. I mentioned earlier in the story that I had a fiance. Well, that fiance was now an ex-fiance. And despite New York being the size it is, it wasn't really big enough for the two of us. Okay. <laughs> so I wanted to move to Chicago because he had lived in Chicago and hated it. So I knew he would never move there. Okay. So I moved to Chicago, but it was great. I wanted a city that had a lot of the benefits of New York, but that was more affordable and more manageable. And you could like have a car and have more space. And I realized pretty much the salary I was going to make in New York was the same salary I was going to make in Chicago, but the cost of living was so much less that this is how I was going to get further faster. Nice. So I was going to transfer with Unilever, but they announced layoffs that they were laying off. And so any open positions were closed. And at the same time, Pepsi was moving their Tropicana business up from Florida. So and to merge it with the rest of their Quaker and Gatorade businesses interviewed there, went there. I got to work for an amazing man by the name of Ben Brenton. He's now the chief innovation officer at Snap-on Tools. He's been there for a long time, but Ben was amazing and is still one of the smartest people I know and has taught me pretty much everything I know about innovation. And that's really where I found this passion for innovation. And I realized I was quite well made for it. And while I was at Pepsi, these CPG reworks all the time. So they reworked, they split off the juice business unit, the shelf stable from the refrigerated. Okay. And I went with shelf stable, which was a much smaller business unit. And that's where I learned that I liked smaller better. I liked having the resources of a big company, but I liked having direct access to, you know, in the beginning, I was reporting right into the VP of marketing and she reported into the president of the business unit. Oh, wow. I was contributing to the conversation and I was in the room when the decisions were made and I was hearing them and I was learning from it. And I had very direct access to senior leadership. Every time I had a big presentation, Albert Manzoni, the head of the business unit, would swing by my desk afterwards and we'd recap it. And that was amazing feedback for me to get. So as an ABM, my passion for innovation really shone through and I helped them build their innovation pipeline. I helped them work with a fantastic agency that's still around to this day called Consumerize, Ron Rintel out of New York and really build our strategic spaces. I call them drill sites, but the places where these pockets of rich consumer insights and territories live that you can mine them to come up with the unmet needs and then ideate you know, new product ideas against them. And so did that for that shelf stable business unit. And then after that, everything else paled in comparison. After taking this tiny business unit, getting a big chunk of money, 
and doing all that strategy work that I love doing. But here as an assistant brand manager, it's like after that, you're like, no, I don't want to go back and run IRI data. (laughs) (laughs) So they promoted me to brand manager, but I was still kind of unsettled. And that's when Wrigley at the time came to me. The recruiter from Pepsi had left and gone to Wrigley. And she was like, hey, we've got this global role and it's global innovation and it's all upstream, fuzzy front end, we call it. It's traveling the world, doing consumer research and coming up with the strategic platforms and the ideas, new product ideas. That's what we need. And I was like, wow, this is far more interesting to me. Sounds like a terrible sell. Yeah. (laughs) And I wasn't married at the time. And I was like, you're going to send me to like Russia and China and Europe and I'm going to fly business class. Like, yeah, sign me up. That's a yes. Yeah. And it was oh, the Global Innovation Center was like a eight minute drive from my house with free parking. Like, yeah, who, who wouldn't take it? But I do feel like in retrospect, I probably should have spent more time at Pepsi. I was only there for a couple of years. And to this day, some of my best friends in the world are people that I met at Pepsi and some of the, you know, just my favorite people that I've ever worked with. You got the A-team from PwC that worked on a and then a lot of the folks that I worked with at Pepsi. It's a really, really nice alumni network from the Quaker, the old Quaker business. So I did that. And then, yeah, I wound up staying at Wrigley, transitioned to some other roles, but stayed at Wrigley for almost five years, was there while Mars acquired them. And you even got to work on the Lifesavers brand, right? And I ran the Lifesavers brand. That's so cool. Gummies, mints, and hard candy. And I hadn't really worked on kind of the, you call it, in brand management, it's like innovation and base, people call it usually. And base is running the business and innovation is coming up with the new products. And I had fallen in love so much with this innovation that I hadn't done base since whisk laundry detergent. So I returned to base, if you will, and I ran the Lifesavers business and it put me through the ringer. I learned a lot and I still have a lot of stories from that and it made me a better marketer, but it was not fun and there were a lot of tears shed and my husband had to talk me off the ledge quite a few times. So I was trying to get pregnant and we were having a really hard time and there was an opportunity for me to exit and it was the right time to go. So I was able to do that and then consult out on my own and control my own hours and focus a little bit on starting a family, which worked. That's awesome. Then you went to, well, let's say you did independent consulting for a little bit and then eventually went to Reynolds, which is in Lake Forest, where oddly enough, where I was born. Oh, really? Yes, I was. It's beautiful there. It's very nice. It is. We didn't live there. I was just born at Lake Forest Hospital. Lake Forest Hospital. I've been there. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So we, I remember us consulting out on my own, doing a lot of really interesting work for craft and some agencies and Merrill, the footwear and you know outdoor wear company. And then I got pregnant, which was amazing. And my husband was at a startup and they were pivoting and he, they, he found out he was going to expire, if you will, there. And so it's like, oh my God, one of us needs a job with benefits. We can't both be consulting. So I started putting my resume out there and a friend of mine, Robin Weiner, who's amazing, you know, said, wow. I love how you remember all these people, by the way. <laughs> no, I'm serious. That's such an important, like I can tell that's a lot about who you are. That's really cool. Well, I owe her a text back because this week was her birthday and I texted her. <laughs> and she was like, how are you? But I haven't answered her yet. But I'm going to say, I just no, mentioned cool, you on a podcast. I mean, a lot lot of people don't keep in touch or even remember people. So I'm a big believer that we don't do this on our own. So I want to remember the people who matter and everyone I've mentioned today, they're all people who matter. Yeah. 
That's awesome. We're going to tag the, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So Robin was like, I hear you're looking. Like, how can I convince you to take this job? And because I was probably a little overqualified for it. And I said, would you hire a pregnant woman? And she was like, if it's you, yes. <laughs> so she hired me. I was four months pregnant. And kudos to her. I don't know if her, I'm assuming her boss knew. But it, they were great. Reynolds was fantastic about it. And I worked there for, you know, whatever, five months. And then went out on maternity leave. And then took a three-month maternity leave and came back. And really worked on helping to bring Reynolds into, we were looking at bringing Reynolds into new categories. So trying to think, you know, beyond the, you know, it's Reynolds wrap and it's hefty trash bags, but trying to bring those equities into new and different spaces. I worked for Robin and she was fantastic. I worked for a man named Sean Foster, who I think is still there. And to this day, Sean is one of the most courageous leaders. Like I loved him because he really didn't, he didn't play the game and he didn't care what people thought and he wasn't afraid to put a provocative opinion out there. And he definitely taught me that, you know, there's a way to do that, but it's okay to do that. And it's okay to challenge that and to, to have a differing opinion. Coming from some organizations that were very alignment and very consensus focused, that was a breath of fresh air for me. So I went to Reynolds and I remember Sean called me into his office and he's like, great news, we're promoting you to director, which had been a long time coming. And I was like, I can't take it, we're moving to Seattle. <laughs> My husband had been offered a job that he couldn't turn down with Amazon. Oh, wow. I wanted to support him. Good timing to be part of Amazon too. <laughs> yeah, it was a good time to be part of Amazon. And and so we moved to Seattle. So that was my, now I call it my second tour of duty on the West Coast. Wound up at Starbucks, little company, probably haven't heard of it. I think I've heard of it. I think I've heard of it. They might have some brand cachet. And so I went to Starbucks and I went to work on their espresso business on innovation, which was really fun. It was espresso, it was a 500, no, no, I'm sorry, like a $2 billion business or something like that, oh, espresso wow. alone. Jeez. And this was gonna be innovation. So what's the next pumpkin spice latte? <laughs> and I got to work with a man named Peter Dukes, who was the father of pumpkin spice latte. And he ran that business, like really? a really tight business. And Peter Dukes is the father of pumpkin spice. Yeah, Peter Dukes is the father of pumpkin spice latte. But yeah, went there and, and did that for a couple months. And then they were like, just okay. kidding, we're reworking. <laughs> Oh my Are you kidding me? I just like turned down a director role. I moved across the country. I loved the team. Talk about an A team. This was an amazing A team. Ryan Elvers, Laura Gallagher, Nicola Moore, some Laura Chin, just some really, really fantastic marketers and business people. And they kind of dissolved all of us. I think Peter was a team builder. He coached all of his kids' sports teams. And he had just created like the absolute right team. And then they just like dissolved it right in front of his eyes. So, and so I went up on the tea business and here I was back in running a brand again, like I did in Lifesavers and Whisk. And I ran the $500 million hot tea business, all the chai and the brewed tea for Starbucks. And I did that for about a year. It was pretty intense. And then I was pregnant again. Congrats. And I was like, I can't work till nine o'clock at night every night. And so I was able to move into our global org doing global innovation for the packaged coffee business. And the funny thing is, is that then that business six months later reworked and became part of the CPG business. So here I was, the whole reason I didn't mention it, the whole reason I went to Starbucks is because I wanted to do something more experiential. I wanted to do something where you had more than a product in a package on a shelf and you were really creating an experience for somebody. And I felt within the retail format of Starbucks, you'd be able to do that. And then here I was, I'm like, nope, we're gonna sell coffee oh. on the shelf of the grocery store. <laughs> 
Oh, wow. Okay, full circle, right? <laughs> but it was fun. I really enjoyed it. And it was nice to be able to bring my CPG. After working on the tea business, which had been not an easy year, it was nice to bring a lot of my CPG know-how, I think, to the team around me. And I had a great, some great leadership over on the, the Starbucks CPG side that is now Nestle acquired that business or there's a joint venture that happened right after I left. But, you know, it was a good time. It was great. I had two kids. It was very manageable. I knew what I was doing. And it was kind of funny because when I got to Starbucks, I remember thinking like, Starbucks, they've got to have it all figured out. Every company I've ever gone to, I was like, they've got to have it all figured out. And then you get there and you're like, no, they don't. No one's got it figured out. So Starbucks, didn't I introduce the same thing that I had did, that I had done in shelf-stable juices for Pepsi. And then at Wrigley was global platform. Like, let's think about platforms. Let's think about these larger spaces, these drill sites, underpinning, you know, with consumer insights and unmet needs. And let's figure out what the areas are that we want to mine. You know, what's next generation flavored coffee? What is functional coffee going to look like? And I think we had fun names like Double Duty was the functional coffees that caffeinate you, but give you other functional benefits and things like that and develop those areas. And then with the fantastic little team, me and a great R&D person and a great consumer insights person, populated that with ideas, new product ideas, and then worked with bases and did some bases idea statement testing and were able to see what rose to the top. And then we prioritized those initiatives and it was really fun. And to this day, I will see things launched and I'm like, oh my God, that was one of our idea babies. And I worked on my big project there was Starbucks Plus coffee with twice the caffeine in K-Cups. Oh, cool. Wow. So I worked on the launch of that with a great team and we got that and then built out the whole functional pipeline, which later launched Starbucks with turmeric, Starbucks with antioxidants and things like that. So it's interesting how the ideation phase, just the pipeline to get to go to market, right? Because obviously, you know, there's a lot of stuff required before because you're just starting to see kind of like those products be, I would say, prevalent now, right? Yes. Yes. And you've got to be ahead. You know, it takes three. I mean. Gosh, think about all the R&D work to get to a formulation with the coffee that tastes good with these functional benefits can take years to figure that out. So you really have to be ahead of the trends Yeah, and be talking to people in leading edge markets versus more mainstream markets to figure that out. Oh, that's cool. Actually, believe it or not, the last two episodes we aired, not intentionally, were focused on coffee. Oh, fun. Yeah. One was uh, CEO of Chamberlain Coffee, which is basically a Gen Z brand. Yeah. And then the other was a coffee distributor who brought coffee to retailers. But I digress. Uh, <laughs> now I'm getting off topic. Okay. So that was Starbucks, right? And then there was, did you go directly to Frida's or? Yeah. I was at Starbucks and I'd been there for four years and I got some very good advice from someone that I will keep anonymous. And he said to me, you work at all these big companies. He's like, you have such a big heart and you love to roll up your sleeves and you love to make an impact. And that is getting lost in these really large organizations where it's PowerPoint deck after PowerPoint deck. And you're just aligning, 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 aligning that by the time you get final alignment, A, it's been nine months and B, your idea is completely watered down. And he said, I think you would do much better in a middle market company. Go in somewhere at a senior level, go in as the number one or number two marketer, but where everyone can see the passion that you bring to the table. And that was one of the best pieces of advice I have ever received. And I started looking and Frida's, we call it Frida's branded produce. At the time it was Frida's specialty produce. I went on LinkedIn and I was just, I talked to my husband and he's like, look, we moved to Seattle for my job. 
the next move is for you. Awesome. He's like, you know, I'm not going to go live in the middle of nowhere, but <laughs> it's got to be somewhere we want to live. He's like, but I'm open. And my oldest was now about to start kindergarten. And I went on LinkedIn. I removed the geographic filters and this head of marketing for Frida's came up and I was like, this is kind of interesting. Let me go on their website. I thought the brand was cool. I thought it had a ton of potential. I wasn't familiar with it. And I learned the story of Frida's, which is amazing. We were founded in 1962 by Frida, who passed away a few years ago, but she was still here and coming to work four days a week when I started. And she founded Frida's on the LA produce market. And talk about like a man's world, like that was such a man's world. And she totally broke the glass ceiling of that man's world. And she, her claim to fame is the Kiwi. She introduced the Kiwi to America. You're kidding. The legend is that a produce, a shopper had been vacationing in New Zealand, went to the grocery store and said, hey, I have these fabulous Chinese gooseberries. Can you get it for me? And so they said, let me let my buyer know. And then the buyer was walking the LA produce market and Frida had a conversation with the buyer and Frida was like, I'm gonna get that for you. And so she figured out how to import it and she renamed it the Kiwi and the rest is history. That is so cool. Yeah, it's such an amazing story. And so she did that and she was, you know, ran the business probably for 20 years, something like that, 30 years. And then her daughters, her daughters got involved in the business when they graduated from college and her daughters ultimately bought the business from her and today they run it. Karen Kaplan is our president and CEO and Jackie Kaplan Wiggins is our chief administrative officer. And Karen is my boss, so I report right into her and run marketing, innovation, and insights for her. The brand had so much potential. And when I got to Frida's, we talked a lot about the strength of the brand and you know how could we get more consumers in the know? We were still selling a lot of produce bulk and packaged. And how do we make sure that our brand comes shining through more and how do we have more packaged items and how do we have more UPC items? Because if you have a UPC, you can measure your sales rate. So we're able to access IRI data and show that our products sell better than the competition and package that up and create really compelling selling stories with that. So that's been part of what, you know, we did a new graphics and again, did all my work of what are the brand equities and what are consumers really thinking about when they interact with our packaging. And a lot of it's about trying new produce. I mean, a third of consumers will admit that they are afraid to try a new fruit or vegetable because they don't know what to do with it. Interesting. But 48% of people will tell you that friendly, approachable branding helps them overcome that. And you have to assume a third of people are admitting that. So there's probably a lot more people who feel that way that just aren't willing to admit that in a survey. <laughs> I'm sure if I would. So we were able to really introduce things like rhombus rambutan and Stokes purple sweet potatoes and honey dragons dragon fruit and fire dragons dragon fruit and quick fire shishito peppers. And gosh, I'm looking at my list, organic mighty gold turmeric and Mahana ginger and of Tiki's drinking coconuts. So how do you take things that feel left of center? Yeah. We don't sell apples, oranges, and bananas. We sell this more unique produce, but we try and create an experience around it. Like I was trying to do Starbucks, you know, name it something that makes it approachable and use our bright colors and fun brand assets to really make someone feel comfortable to try it. That's so cool. And do you feel like, at least from my interpretation, is like you all lean into the healthy kind of aspect of it. Is that different from maybe some of the work you had done in the past? Or am I kind of like mischaracterizing that? Well, one of the reasons why I was so excited to come here is that center store is shrinking. 
So you work on something that goes into the center store of the grocery store, you're always gonna be fighting the battle that your category is losing shelf space. And how do you justify that? But when you go the perimeter, so in the grocery store, if you haven't noticed, the center is shrinking yep. and the outside is growing, right? Yep. More and more of a focus on fresh foods. The pandemic was a little bit of a reset on that, that like people returned to center store and categories that hadn't seen growth in decades were all of a sudden growing again. But you have to assume that that's not going to be continued for the next 10 years. Yeah, we, we were all eating very, very poorly during the pandemic at home. <laughs> Canned soup and beefaroni, whatever it is. But um, <laughs> yeah. so it's in produce, you have tailwinds, which is people are expanding the space yeah. and they want to devote more and more to produce. Other brands want to pro- co-promote with produce. They want to have find produce in other areas of the stores and things like that. So you're not quite fighting the battle of shrinking center store because of the health benefits and because you can lean into that. So for that reason, I was very excited to switch categories. That's awesome. And this kind of fits very squarely in like in both kind of call it brand strategy and innovation, right? And experience because of, I mean, the, the produce you just, you just named, I think Shishitos were the only ones that I like could admit to actually trying, by the way. Oh, I'm going to, Ken, you give me your address after this. I'm going to send you a super fun box and you're going to try all kinds of amazing things. And you're going to let me know what you love best. Oh, I'm excited that you're going to do that because I will be... <laughs> <laughs> Because my wife will make me. But I admit to being one of those consumers, actually, funnily enough. Like, I know I like spinach. I know I like this. I know I like that. And I don't have a lot of play outside of that. Like, I didn't know I liked Brussels sprouts until I was, like, in my 30s. So We're going to get you there. (laughs) Well, that's because nobody knew how to cook Brussels sprouts until you were in your 30s. Fair. And steamed Brussels sprouts in the microwave is pretty gross. But when you, like, cook them with some olive oil on a sheet pan or air fryer and get them nice and crispy with some kosher sea salt, you know. Yeah, that's true. And that's what I'm going to have tomorrow night, actually. (laughs) Okay, so then if you talk about the brand essence, if I'm using the right terminology for Frida's, how would you kind of describe that? Oh, great question. So I think, you know, Frida's, we're all about colorful, healthy, and delicious. We want to bring more variety to the plate. And so we're all about these colorful, healthy, delicious eating experiences and trying new things and trying new things with friends and family and other people that you love. So I think that's that's really what we're all about is how do you create an eating experience and one that's fueled by produce. And I'd say, for example, one of the innovations that we've launched recently that I am very excited about and my little innovation baby is Shishido Kits. So we took Shishido's peppers, which you said you're familiar with, yep. and we paired them with seasoning packets. Oh, cool. And all of a sudden, because I don't know about you, but I'm always like, what vegetable are we? You got to eat vegetables, right? But I'm like, okay, broccoli. All right, Monday we're going to have broccoli. Then we're going to have asparagus. Then maybe we're going to have mushrooms. What's left, right? So Shishido peppers are a great vegetable side dish. And we've got sesame soy and garlic herb, and the garlic herb comes with a packet of pink Himalayan sea salt, so it's so delicious. And you just stir fry these up in the pan and then mix it with the seasoning, and there you go. There's your veggie side dish that you can pair with pretty much anything, and it's a quick, colorful, healthy, delicious. 
dinner. So Kroger's got those Shishido kits right now. We are expanding to other retailers, but that's one of the things I am most excited about that I've worked on here that we've just seen be an instant runaway success. That's really cool. And also thanks for sharing the initial story of how the company was founded and the Kiwi story. Like, I feel like this has been such an education for me today. Yeah. And I love the family is amazing. They actually have a documentary that was made about them. That's called Fear No Fruit. Fear No Fruit. Okay. You can find it on the Frida's website. You can watch it for free, but it's this amazing story of how these women, this matriarch-led company has just changed the way America eats. And it's an amazing story and some really, really great loving people. That's awesome. And I can tell like you're very passionate about it in the brand. And the other thing that I picked up on that I didn't know before we chatted is kind of getting back to like the, you know, how people find careers and stuff like that. It's like, it seemed like almost every other job that you had, it was a recruiter reaching out to you right or you know you knew somebody that was kind of like he tapping you on the shoulder to bring you along and you know i think it's very interesting because like even when we're you know senior in our careers we can still find stuff on our own and i think it's so cool that you were just doing your own research and kind of found frida's on your own i think it's something that folks are maybe not intimidated or i don't even think it's like lazy to do but i feel like it's a very viable option no matter what stage of your career or life you're at Yeah, I think so too. I mean, if you wait for people to tap you, you'll never know what else was out there. Yeah. So... The other part that I didn't get to talk about is I feel like one of the other things I did was really bring us to into the 2020s in terms of our digital footprint. And, you know, when I got here, we did a lot more marketing to our buyers, but really having a much more balanced approach. We've got to push it onto the shelf and then we've got to make sure that consumers come and pull it off the shelf, both online and in store. So I think that's the other big piece of what I've done, but it's just been, it's been really fun. It's been a great ride. I feel good about what I've done every day and I feel good about the team that helps me do it. I've got some great people who work for me and with me and it's been a lot of fun. That's awesome. And thanks for sharing your energy and your story with us. I guess just to kind of like wrap things up. Okay, so a lot of our audience is either kind of like they're sitting in consulting, thinking about that kind of like first role, or maybe they're kind of like on their first or second like job post consulting. What advice would you give to them? Well, my career advice to people who are earlier in their career and starting out is as much as I love working at a small company and I found that that was for me, if you go somewhere big, you will get a broader view, a broader perspective. You will get to see multiple brands. You will get to see multiple functions. You will get to see more stuff done and get that experience, which will be very valuable to both big companies and small. Yep. And then later on, you can kind of figure out, like me with innovation, was there a particular area that I found to be very sticky? And you can gravitate towards that. But it's like, keep your base broad at the beginning. You can always narrow that down later on. That is kind of one of the big things that I usually tell people. And it's not to say you can't start small and be very successful. But what I have found is when people start small, a lot of times they think maybe the grass is greener. They wonder what it would be like if they were somewhere bigger. And so they sometimes only stay small for a couple of years and then try and use that experience to go bigger. So I think I just start in a broader role at a broader organization. More is more sometimes when you're starting out because it's going to give you that 30,000 foot view that you're going to be able to utilize for the rest of your career. And do you feel like, okay, so you kind of go broad and then you go kind of to maybe a middle market company. Do you feel like though 
I guess maybe a better question is what advice do you have for someone like that that's so used to all the resources at their disposal at a larger company and is now like in an environment where maybe they don't have like a a 10 person team. Maybe it's just them and someone else. What advice would you have for them? I mean, it's look carefully at yourself and know what motivates you and prioritize that. Like I'd say for me, what motivated me is I definitely wanted to take more of a leadership role. I mean, I went in from being kind of a middle management marketer to, you know, the head marketer, you know, basically the CMO. And I knew that wanting to lead motivated me, but I also knew that rolling up my sleeves and doing the work myself, as long as I could get in there and make an impact, I knew that I actually enjoyed that too. But let's say I was a kind of person where I wanted to lead, but I knew that I wasn't really motivated by rolling up my sleeves. But if I had found myself in a smaller company and all of a sudden there was work that other people, I was used to them doing, and now I was gonna have to do it myself, ultimately I would have burned out. Yeah. So it's understand what motivates you as clearly and crisply as possible, and then really understanding that in priority order. So you're making the decisions that are right for you. Awesome, I think that's really good advice. Cindy, this has been such a fun time to talk to you. I've learned more about brand strategy and innovation than I think I way more than I knew an hour ago. Lastly, just to wrap it up, if folks wanted to learn more about Frida's or yourself, is there any information you'd like to share? We can drop it in the podcast description. Sure thing. www.fridas.com, you know, we're branded produce. Definitely come to our website to check out what we sell and to connect with me. LinkedIn is a great way. And I always love hearing from people and I like meeting new people and expanding my network. And so I would love to do that. And, you know, I think in preparation for this conversation, it's been a while since I worked in consulting and I went back and I really thought through what it is that I worked on and what benefits did it really give me. And what I would say is that one of the things that I feel really comfortable in is strategy. Like it's definitely something that, you know, if you're talking to somebody who's worked for me, they're like, what is Cindy really well known for? And strategy would come to the top of the conversation. And I do owe that to consulting. I really do. Like that 30,000 foot view and working on leadership team initiatives and understanding what a company's strategy is going to be and how they're going to get there, I bring that with me to work every day. And so thank you to my good friends at PwC. That's awesome. (laughs) Kari LePage, (laughs) Amy Meller Thompson, and the rest of the team there for helping to teach me that because it is paying dividends throughout my career. The A-team. That's awesome. The A-team. I appreciate you sharing that. That's really cool. And I think like my big takeaway too is more confirmation that like in what I believe is that, you know, we don't get to where we are on our own. So... I think it's really cool, all the people that you talked about too. So we'll be sure to mention them. Thanks so much for joining us, Cindy. For those of you listening for the first time, make sure to hit subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or Google or Amazon now. We're on all those different platforms. If you want to catch transcripts of past episodes, you can go to beyondconsulting.info. And then if you want to get in touch with me or anybody else at my firm, it's going to be eca-partners.com. Until next week, Cindy, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been awesome. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, Ken. You bet.